morning we are continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and today on verses 21 through 24, our title, Practice Covenant Faithfulness. Today, we'll, as we get into this, I'll point out that the wording here is very strong. And some, it might be surprising to some, but maybe not. But I'll tell you why, because it comes right out of the Old Testament. And the overall theme is that when you're in a covenant relationship with the Lord, according to his terms and his working, you can't also act and live as if you're in a fellowship with the works of darkness or Satan and demons. It's either or, not both and. So let's pray and then we'll begin. Thank you, Lord, for kindness that you've shown to us in Christ, for your goodness for your mercy, and for the universal call of the gospel. And may those who have known you as we serve and live in life, may we learn these lessons and not fall into what would be destructive. Thank you, Lord, for giving us grace to live accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. So may we live as those who are the Lord. So we'll go to 1 Corinthians 10, 21. When I had this laid out in the Greek, as I began my study, I noticed these words are contrasted. They just kind of how it laid out. So I tried to put it into a little table, what it looks like. Let me read the text. 1 Corinthians 10.21 from the Christian Standard Bible. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. So these parallel statements are very arresting. They get your attention. Wow, what is this all about? There are two verbs here, drink and share. Now, the, this is the Lord's Supper Day for us here, and it's something certainly we want to think about. The table would be table fellowship. The cup would be the provision that we'll talk about at the Lord's Supper And so these Christians in Corinth were gathering in homes and they were sharing the Lord's Supper as he instituted and he uh, instructed. We'll talk about that here as we're on the slide even. But yet some of the strong, the knowledgeable, were saying that they could go to the pagan temples and share in the pagan food and drink, and even some of the things worse than that. And it was okay, because all things are lawful. They had these slogans, all things are lawful. We'll be okay. We need to go to these pagan things as well, and we'll go to the Lord's Supper, because we have business associates, associates, we have opportunities, We have friends and family. This is where we were used to going. We'll go there, and then we'll go over to this little home over here and gather together and break bread with the Christians. So Paul is striking to the root of this and saying, you cannot do this. So these parallel statements, let me read from my notes here. These parallel statements create stark contrast. If you drink the Lord's cup, as he ordained for his supper... It is abhorrently unthinkable to then drink the demon's cup 
at the pagan temple service. If you eat at the Lord's table with his people in anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb, it is utterly wicked to eat at the table of demons in one of these pagan temples. Very clear point from the text here. It comes out well in both the Greek, comes out well in our English translation. Now, it's a little more subtle in our day, but not any different in regard to the consequences. And I'll point that out as we get through this sermon. The pagan temples may be actual churches as we would look at them. Okay, that's part of the complication. There are many uh, temples that have been erected in the name of Christ that have pagan sacrifices, but they don't call them that. So we need to use some discernment to make sure that's not what we're doing. But in this case, it was pretty clear what they were doing. Turn with me to Luke twenty-two fifteen. Today we do have the Lord's Supper, but I want to read the words of institution uh, that, are, that are based on Luke 22, where Jesus dined with his disciples before he was crucified. Luke twenty-two fifteen. I'll read through verse 20. On the next, uh, in a bit, probably the next slide, I'll cover 21. Luke twenty-two fifteen. And then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, notice giving thanks to God, he said, take this and share it among yourself. Notice the word share. Then we go on. Verse 18, for I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So that's why it's called the Last Supper. He's dining with his disciples before his death, burial, crucifixion, and then, you know, his ascension into heaven. So this is the ground for what we participate in. We call the Lord's Supper. Verse 19, And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it, gave it to them, and said, quote, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now this, part of this, is also in Luke, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is added, this is some of the material in Luke that's not in Mark or Matthew. One scholar said there are 19 Greek words found uh, also in 1 Corinthians 11, 24 to 26, that you're, that's found here in Luke. So Luke is the source, uh, or there's a common source between Luke and 1 Corinthians 11. But one of the ideas that comes out in all of these is this blood of the covenant. This is a covenant issue. At issue is covenant faithfulness. At issue is table fellowship. At issue is a solidarity of uh, 
relationship with God and one another, honoring the Lord Jesus who instituted his supper, and having left the fellowship we had before with the wicked world that is bound for judgment, that's in darkness. Now, I have the same verse. Let's go to the next slide. The same verse here I, I put on again because I want to break out some of the issues that are important. 1 Corinthians 10, 21. Again, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. One of the scholarly sources that I used analyzing this made, uh, I thought, a very profound uh, statement, and I'm going to talk about it. It's in the first line there in blue, although I slightly changed it. Cannot. When you look at this, you cannot. Well, what does that mean? Because some of them were already doing it. Some of the Corinthians were already going both to the pagan temple service and the Christian one in the home. Because the other was, as I said before, massive. It was, there were several of them, there were many of them, polytheistic, very, very impressive. It was very sensual and tangible in that way. And here's some ordinary Christians just gathering in a poor little home, in some cases, and breaking bread and reminding each other of what the Lord did for them. You see, in its native offense, the gospel and the cross produces those who believe who are dedicated to the Lord, and they don't become Christian because they're impressed with the buildings Christians have. That's not the point. The Lord did not ordain. I'm not saying it's a sin to have a building. We're, we're renting one. That's not the point. The point is a massive temple designed to attract anyone and everyone with its magnificence is not what God ever ordained for churches. Because these detract from the gospel, which gets lost in all of the pomp and ceremony and smells and bells and whatever. And Christian fellowship is, whether in a big building or a little building or a home or a rented place or a school or wherever we may find a meet, is grounded in the faithfulness of God who through the new covenant, the blood of the covenant, called together a people who are looking forward to the kingdom. Jesus said, I will not eat this uh, and nor drink this cup again until I do it anew in the kingdom. There's going to be a future kingdom that comes. The glory is later. Now, Christians are scattered around the entire world meeting wherever they can, and uh, massive structures are rarely uh, afforded Christians because they're new, they're poor, they're, they, they are who they are. It doesn't really matter. Sometimes they have really big buildings, but sadly some are not all that Christian. So what about the cannot? Well, they can go there if they want, but it's a sin. So what, what is the um, implication of cannot? Number one, this is from Dr. Thistleton's commentary. Number one, logical. Logically, 
you cannot do this because of an incompatibility. I had that in the slide title. Total incompatibility. Two, empirical. Empirical. If you objectively look at what the temple of the Aphrodite or Poseidon or whichever one you're going to, if you look at it, this is not Christian. This is not from the Lord. This is a totally different thing than the Lord's Supper, and it's totally different than Christian fellowship. So logically, you cannot do this. It makes no sense. And the third, I changed the term. He had, Thistleton had institutional, and I changed it to moral. Now, let me explain why. Well, there's obvious reason it wouldn't fit on the slide. <laughs> but besides that one, um, I thought the word institutional, it's not wrong if you're thinking about the Lord as the one who instituted his supper. But nowadays, institutional would mean all of the different institutional churches don't do it that way, although, frankly, frankly, a lot of them have already integrated the paganism right into their institution. But nevertheless, it's confusing because institutional, the institutional churches of Christendom are not necessarily Christian. They've already, in fact, I wrote a book on the uh, emergent church, and there is uh, panentheism. God is in everything. Everything's evolving into some better future. There's no future judgment. So you can have churches that have been institutionalized. They have nothing to do with biblical Christianity. They can be a lot of different things. Only the Lord instituted his supper. So I changed it to moral. You cannot go to the pagan feast because it's immoral. And in their case, it was obviously immoral. They had temple prostitutes. And it's certainly immoral to uh, sin against the Lord in that manner. So the Lord's table is is, uh, from a different spiritual source which logically excludes the other. The Lord's table cannot be demonic. The demon's table cannot be Christian. Stating that, the word table there denotes the fellowship around the table, not a physical object. Not a physical object. There's no holy table that's made out of some certain kind of substance that you found some certain place and then it was blessed as an object by some priest or priestess, and now it's holy. I think I've explained it a couple different times. No, the holiness is in the Lord himself and the significance of our fellowship in Christ and our mutual uh, life together in the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a verse you want to know. Uh, Isaiah 65, 11, and 12. I'll just read verse 11 here. Isaiah 65, 11. This was applied under the Old Covenant. Isaiah 65, 11. I'm going to cite two different translations. One is Lexham English Septuagint. It's directly translated from the Septuagint. And the other... The ESV, which is translated from the Hebrew. So let me cite both of them. Isaiah 65, 11. But you who have forsaken me 
and for God my holy mountain, and who prepare a table for a demon and fill up a mixture to fortune. That's directly translated from the Septuagint. You set a table for a demon and fill up a mixture to fortune. Now let me read the translation from the Hebrew, Isaiah 65, 11. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill up cups of mixed wine for destiny. So the word demon comes from the Septuagint, which is also where Paul got it, most likely here, table for demons. Isaiah 65, 11. Now why either fortune or fortune and destiny? Well, I have an answer for that. And uh, Dr. Oswald, in his commentary on Isaiah, made a good point. Let me read that. I hope this is pertinent or interesting to you. Oswald, quote, one of the perennial concerns of humans is the control of the future. The fear of the unknown keeps driving us to a variety of sources in our attempt to know what is going to happen to us. Thus, when God gives us evidence only of his past faithfulness and asks us to trust him to keep uh, a variety of good promises for the future, we typically find this hard to do. I'm going to point that out. Fortune and destiny. People want to know the future. And they will go to great lengths to go into occultism to try to find it out to the tarot cards, to the Ouija board, or to other ways of finding out the future, or trying to control it themselves as those who claim they can make decrees in the name of God about what will happen, and their decrees will happen because they believe they will. It's a similar thing. One book I recently read even claimed that we have control over time that the history itself is under the control of people, which is a direct opposition to what God says in the Bible. God's, the ancient of days, is in charge of time, not some enlightened ones who know how to do things. So we have people trying to take control by their decrees rather than believing what God said, or others who have forbidden techniques, but the unifying concern is the future. And what we have is a clear record of what God has done and clear statements about what he has promised. We know what he's done and who he is, and we know what he's promised. And as we still struggle with fears, hesitancies, what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen as I get older, what's going to happen to my children or my grandchildren, what's going to happen to my job. There's many a thing, many things in life we don't know. But we know him, and we know his promises. And so when Jesus said at his supper, I will not have this fruit of the vine with you, share this fruit of the vine with you again until I do in the Father's kingdom, we have a promise when he mentions the Father's kingdom. He will be coming. We will have future table fellowship with the Lord himself. And that promise is so profound that these things that we worry about, fortune and destiny, 
by the way, what an abused word. One of the biggest publishers of heresy, I'm, this is my opinion, they, I'm sure they would disagree with me, is destiny image. Okay, that's where these decree the future people all get published. I went to the Christian Booksellers Convention when I had a book out, and right at the middle, as you go in, destiny image, massive, massive display, bigger than anybody else there. Look at the titles. New Apostolic Reformation, Word of Faith, Prosperity, all of it. That is what people want. They want the fortune and destiny to figure it out, not to, by faith, trust the promises of God. So uh, there's an application. Some, a lot of folks won't like it, but they're flat out wrong. God is in charge of our destiny as we trust him, not us. It's not how to write your own ticket with God, as I read when I was in Bible college from a false teacher. Continuing to so, quote, were you still hanging on that? <laughs> I'll get back to it. Here it is. Oswald, thus here, living in self-induced darkness, these persons seek the gods of fortune and destiny in an attempt to propitiate them and gain good luck in the future. The mention of arranging tables and filling mixed wine sounds uh, much like the offering of a ritual meal to the gods that is known from all over the ancient world. One more, this is my statement. The table of demons is the fellowship of worldly pleasure. The table of demons is the fellowship of worldly pleasure. And it was all over the ancient temples, and it's all over religion in the world today, some of it under the banner of Christianity. Now, there was one more verse in the Last Supper uh, narrative that I didn't quote on the previous slide, so I'll do it here, Luke twenty-two twenty-one. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table. Jesus, Judas, his hands on the table, my hands on the table, the one betraying him, the one was from the devil. Judas was right there. So the fact of being a part of Christian fellowship and a part of the Christian table and everything that seems and sounds Christian, as it was with Judas, as far as being a follower, a disciple, doesn't guarantee that it is so. And Judas was there, but not really with them. Now let me state the key idea here. Now, this is from Malachi 1.6. Part of the issue here is honoring God, honoring God. God is the one who sent his son, who died for sins, the very creator of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, sent into our world, who demonstrated who he is, proclaimed his own identity, did many mighty works that no one else can do to prove that he is God the Son, the Messiah, the Son of Man, Daniel 7, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, 
He predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. He was crucified for sins once for all, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. He was raised on the third day, and he did ascend into heaven. Now, those of us who are recipients of his grace by his mighty love and mercy and part of the new covenant, that we have table fellowship with our Lord, believing that he will indeed have this fellowship in person with us when he comes, as he promised in Luke 22. Dear ones, there's a danger of dishonoring God, and that's the warning that we have here. And it was so in the, in the Old Covenant. Malachi 1.6. Malachi 1.6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. That if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts. This is Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. To you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Malachi 1.7. You are presenting defiled food on my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And you, in there you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. We'll do what we want, how we want, when we want. I mean, we're not getting what we want out of this Christianity that we thought we were part of. We want to have the things the world has. We want to have control of our own future, much, much less having to trust God, who might bring things that we don't want in our walk with him. And this dishonoring God is an epidemic. It's an epidemic. Going to the pagans and finding out from them how to pray. Literally, I look back over a whole lot of articles over the last 30 years. It's amazing how many articles I was able to write. I think we're at, well, just the issues we just published was 142, but there were many others in other categories. Pagan prayer techniques, uh, trying to control the future through statements that we make with our mouths, Silencing your mind in order to contact God so you can feel closer to him. A romantic Jesus. There's all these things. How is it that Christendom, and yes, evangelicalism, as it is popularly today, is so dissatisfied with the covenant God gave us so that what we end up is being a people with our sins forgiven, Filled with the Spirit, hope and joy and peace, one another, love, the things that we all have together in common in Christ, and we're dissatisfied with it, and say, give us something better. This isn't exciting enough. This is too ordinary. Look at the pagans. They got everything. That's what's going on. I'm not exaggerating. Dear ones, never, ever believe that knowing Christ and having fellowship with him and one another, sharing the same sacred promises from God who cannot lie, has somehow left you 
out in the cold. God doesn't do that. He does care for his own. And he can say, where is my honor? We might get the prayer app, hallowed be thy name. They have that. They had, they had to add for that the Super Bowl. You see that? And have no idea what hallowed even means. What does hallowed mean? Well, what it means is that may your name be holy. And God's name is holy as he creates a holy people by a sovereign work of grace through the gospel and that we have a relationship with him. That's what the word means. And you get that by believing in the Lord himself. Today, repent and believe the gospel had you not previously done so. I mentioned who Jesus is, what he did. He says, uh, come unto me. He says, believe in me, trust in me, repent and believe the gospel. Trust in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of sins. Verse 22. Or are you provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are you provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? There's an ironic rebuke. I hope to help explain this to you. It's really amazing when you look at the details. What's going on here? Well, there's obvious allusion to the Old Testament because the wilderness wanderers that we've mentioned many times in this series, 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul talked about our fathers went through the water and were baptized in the spirit and the wilderness and so on. And so we're talking about the wilderness generation that provoked God. But what does it mean to test God? We want to get that right. What does it mean to test God? Well, literally, the, in the Greek, the or is a translation of word that in context could be rendered. I have it here on, on the slide. What? What? You Corinthians, you're stronger than God? Remember, in Corinth, they had the strong, the elitists. We're the strong. We can go into the temple. It won't hurt us any. We go, to, I mean, to the pagan temple. We, we have knowledge. We have slogans. Well, they're still out there. We have slogans. All things are lawful. We all know. Because of our knowledge, good things are going to happen for us. Too bad we have these weak, pathetic Christians. We're the strong. So the strong are the elitists in Corinth who don't see any problem with all this. And that's what's going on. So God is a jealous God. Dining at the idol temple is testing God. Now, I really uh, feel a burden to explain this. I don't mind. Somehow my timer is going very slowly, so I'm not going to trust it. All right, I think I got it on time or something. I got something wrong with it. I promise you'll get to go down and eat. And we'll, we'll get, I'll just go by the old watch. But frankly, uh, the, what does it mean to test God? We got to get it right. What does it mean that God's a jealous God? Well, I hope by God's grace to explain this. Let me just first touch on the verses we have on the slide here, Exodus 34, 14, and 15. For you will not bow down and worship to another god, 
For Yahweh is jealous. It's one of the names of the Lord. Yahweh is jealous, is his name. He is a jealous God. Exodus 34, 15. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they prostitute themselves after their gods, and they sacrifice to their gods, and they invite you, and you eat their sacrifice. Now, this will come up. I've got the sermon pretty well ready for next Sunday. This invitation, they invite you. So here's part of the issue. What if the pagans invite you to eat with their gods? Well, the Lord said, I'm a jealous God. I'm a jealous God. That's one of my names. And then this ironic question, are you stronger than him? If God creates a people and shows love to them and brings them out with a mighty hand, delivers them from Pharaoh, which they were crying out to him to do, and brings them to himself and guides them with a pillar of fire by night and cloud by day and speaks to them through Moses, gives them the ten words on Sinai, and all of that happens. And then we're saying, you know what? I th- Pharaoh had a lot to offer. Maybe we should rethink this. Maybe we weren't very clear when we were thinking about Pharaoh. We had good stuff to eat. Wasn't bad back there. And the world starts looking good. That happens to Christians. Some just go on back. God isn't meeting my needs. People at the church aren't nice to me. I think I'll just go on back. And that's what is being uh, warned about right here. Jesus said, no, Luke sixteen thirteen, no servant can serve two masters since he will either hate one and love the other or to be devoted to one and despise the other. He cannot serve both God and money. Now, money is a big category because it basically describes access to everything else. If you have enough money, you have lots of options and uh, it's not that money creates evil, it's that evil people are looking for options. And if you're serving money, you're not serving God. Now, let's turn to Exodus 17.1. You can turn there, I'll, I'll read this to you. This is where this all comes from. I don't know why I keep looking at this slow-moving clock over here. But we'll get through it. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. And I'll read it as you take, put your eyes on it and think about it. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. This is exactly where this comes from. Then I'm going to explain, hopefully, in a very understandable way, what it means to test God and why it's so bad. Okay? Exodus 17, 1. The entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin moving from one place to the next according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me, Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? There's that concept again. Why are you testing the Lord? Exodus 17.3. But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled We saw that word before against Moses. They said, 
what, now here's where we're really getting in trouble, okay? Why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Question mark. So the ones who were crying out to God as they labored under the heavy burden of the slave owners, the Pharaoh, and God delivered them when he heard their cry, now are questioning his motives and questioning Moses' motives. Why did you do this? No, I would just answer, well, that's what you asked for. But no, God is merciful, and he acted not because the people deserved it, because he kept his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That they'd be 400 years, and then God would bring them out with a mighty hand. Verse 4, then Moses, so Moses didn't start arguing with them. He did the right thing, cried out to the Lord. Look at this, Exodus 17, 4. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while, they will stone me. Now, look at this carefully. Exodus 17, 5. This will help us. The Lord answered Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile in with your hand and go. So this is the very... Staff that got them out, of, the Lord used to bring them out of Egypt to remind them of what he did. Verse 6 I'm going to stand there. Notice this. I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Oreb. Yahweh stood on that rock in a theophany, just like he was a, a the, the, theophany at the burning bush. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he named the place Massa and Mirabah because the Israelites complained because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, this is very instructive. Despite the fact they tested the Lord, despite the fact they grumbled and complained, God is a merciful God. And to remind them of his love and mercy and his salvation, he had Moses take that same staff, and he, Yahweh, in a theophany, I believe possibly a pre-incarnate visitation of Christ, that happens, stands there on the rock, and they strike it, and out comes the water. It's a type of Christ, as a matter of fact, the rock. So he showed mercy to people who were provoking him to jealousy. Now we need to drill down on this. And I'm going to cite Dr. Fee, who had a great statement here. And that is exactly what I was thinking is going on here. Fee, most likely this is the final warning that God's jealousy cannot be challenged with impunity. Those who would put God to the test by insisting on their right to do what Paul insists is idolatry, are in effect taking God on, challenging him by their actions, daring God to act. That statement caught my attention. I think it's right. 
And so here's what that boils down to. God is a jealous God. God is a merciful God. God shows loving kindness and patience to people. We know this in the Ten Commandments. But he's also one who doesn't leave the guilty go unpunished. Now in the time from between Pentecost and whenever the rapture happens, we're in an age where we don't always see uh, theophany come and uh, some fire come down. Remember the disciples wanted that? It wasn't a good idea. The fire doesn't burn up every sinner right here. But God's attitude is no different. But um, testing the Lord is daring him to act. And here's what that means. Knowing who he is, knowing what he's done, the sinner thinks, or the Christian who's tempted to backslide, thinks, I know God is loving and merciful, and I think I can do what I want, and he won't do anything about it. Very similar to what some children do to their parents sometimes. Parents are saying, you can't do this, you can't do this, there'll be consequences, don't go there, don't do this, it's going to be really bad, we're going to do something. And the kid thinks, oh, they love me, they'll get over it. And goes and does the wrong thing. And keeps doing it until eventually the consequences come, and it's horrible. Yes, dear ones, God is merciful, he's loving, he's patient, he puts up with us. But we're not stronger than him. The strong in Corinth thought they were. They could go to the pagan temple and there'd be no problem. What is being put home on us here to think about, and it struck me, I spent so many hours looking through all this material. Uh, God doesn't cease being loving and merciful nor does he cease being just. And you can read this in Romans 1. He doesn't tolerate those who blaspheme him forever. And mostly it's in eternity. But as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 11, there was temporal judgment right there in Corinth. Remember at the Lord's table where they were despising some of the poor? Some of you were... Some, of you, some among you sleep, remember? Paul as a prophet said, there's already been consequences. We don't know that. Paul did, and he stated it. But that's what it means to test God. You just do what you want and assume God's merciful and he won't do anything. Now let's look at another slogan. Another slogan. 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Everything is permissible. Now this one... The CSB here has it in quotation marks. That was their slogan. Everything's permissible. Here's Paul's retort. But not everything's beneficial. Everything's permissible. But not everything builds up. So here you had another slogan. Everything's lawful. Came up earlier. Permissible here is uh, excessing, excessing. It's a trans, that's what it's translated from. It's used in the Gospels and in debates or discussions about what's lawful. And Jesus said, um, I ask you, is it lawful? That's the word there. But early in 1 Corinthians, it's used in chapter 6, verse 12, 
Where Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not I will not be mastered by anything. And so authorized, permitted, proper, all of those could be translations of that word. Now, here's the issue, and this will cover, when we get into chapter 11, it's going to go all the way through chapter 14. Paul is going to get into the key issue here, is how Christians treat one another. The one can say, I have my rights and this is what I can do, and God won't do anything about it, and think nothing of how it's going to harm others. And that, when it happens, we need and to be uh, struck to the heart. God can get a hold of us. Christians do fall short, but we can't stop caring about other brothers and sisters in Christ. And even if something is legitimately lawful, we're not trying to be lawgivers, but we're not wanting to harm anyone. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. Another slogan. In the case of the Corinthians, some of their... uh, Some of their liberties harmed others. Some of their liberties harmed others. Beneficial could also be translated advantageous or helpful. So better than ask what's permissible, what we should ask is, how can what God's done for me, what gifts he's given me, whatever they are, what knowledge I have, whatever it is, how can that benefit the body of Christ? Not what's splashy, what seems important, but simple believers trusting Jesus, helping each other, and caring about each other in just real basic ways is worth more than we can think. Because we don't, we don't tend to not see what, we, what God sees. And Jesus emphasized that in the Gospels, by the way. The least of these, my brothers... Um, beneficials, sumphero in the Greek, it's used in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what is beneficial to all, what's beneficial to all. So when we get into the gifts of the Spirit, the love chapter, and the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 14, and so on, this will be the theme, what's beneficial Verse 24, verse 24, 1 Corinthians 10, 24. It says here, no one is to seek his own good, but the good of another person. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. So this is a basic ethical statement about Christian love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love does not seek its own is one of the things we'll learn when we go through that chapter. And it'll continue to be our theme. And this reflects the teaching of Jesus about how we treat his little ones. Who are the little ones? Well, let's read Matthew 18, 6. Matthew 18, 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him that a large millstone 
be hung around his neck, and he be drowned in the depths of the sea. Matthew 18.6. Now that seems like kind of a strong statement, doesn't it? But objectively, it's true. To be Judas is a worse ultimate destiny, if I use that word, than uh, drowning in the sea. Because you can be a Christian and drown in the sea and you still go to heaven. So it would be better. That's, that's that word here. Sum Pharaoh. Dr. Gardner says, Paul was concerned that some Christians were building up the weak to get them to join them in eating at the idol's temple. Okay, you weak, we're going to have a seminar. How to be a Christian and still eat at the idol's temple. Do you think that's a good seminar? But this is the kicker. They do have seminars on how to practice contemplative prayer. How to do Christian yoga. How to get in touch with your true self. How to, you know, process your own past as if you could. So we have it cleansed pretty good today so people don't see what it is, but it's really not that different. Gardner says, Paul was concerned that some Christians were building up the weak to get them to join them. Paul has shown how wrong and sinful this is. Instead of building up Christians to stand, 10-12, it, it has led to stumbling and falling. The, uh, 8-13, The opposite of building up the other person is to sin against your brothers, 8-12. Here's my statement. We must beware slogans that seem wise, but are used by elitists to intimidate ordinary Christians. Oh, yes. That is an a specialty, especially here in America. How can the elitists, the powerful ones, the bold ones, the successful ones, the knowledgeable ones, intimidate everybody else to the point where you look at yourself, how pathetic I am. I'll go to the seminar. How to control your own destiny, or whatever it is that they're offering. But honestly, what we need is that all of us, as we are, by God's grace, love one another, care for one another, and accept that no one can pass judgment before the time, but wait till the Lord comes and who knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. And for all we know, the little one, the weak one, the unimpressive one, may be the greatest, and we just don't even know it. So we treat everyone with respect and love. My statement is this. We must beware the slogans that seem wise. They're used by elitists to intimidate ordinary Christians. And I, how far into this am I? Do I have any time left? We've got more time? I've had 52. I've got five minutes. Thank you. I thought I heard 52. Okay, I'll go another 52. Thank you. Thank you, Leslie. Let's just, I'm not too worried about applications. I've made a ton of them already, but believers must not mix true 
fellowship with God with pagan practices. True fellowship with God must be exclusive. Um, quickly, let's go to Deuteronomy 32, 16, and 17. Dangerous fellowship. We can cover that in those five minutes. Deuteronomy 32, 16, and 17. I have a slide for that if you want to go to the next one. There it is. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were no gods. To gods they had never known. To new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. There's something in Congress about new gods. The God we served isn't new. He's been around since before anything existed. He's the creator, anything outside himself, that is. He created all things out of nothing. You want to know the God who's the triune creator of the universe, not new gods. Um, their fathers never dreaded so, Deuteronomy 32, 4, and 5. I mentioned before, all of this we've been covering is really laid out in Deuteronomy 32. There's a lot of commentary, 1 Corinthians 10, based on Deuteronomy 32. It's in there. Let me read a few verses. Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his word is perfect, for all his ways are just. He is a faithful God, without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. 32.5 But they behave corruptly toward him. They're not his children. This is their flaw. A generation crooked and perverse. We've heard that in the New Testament. A few more verses here. Verses 18 through 20, Deuteronomy 32. The rock who bore you, you neglected. And you forgot God, the one giving you birth. Verse 19, then Yahweh saw it. He spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. Remember, Hebrews has the day, it talks about the day of provocation. Verse 20, so he said, I'll hide my face from them. I will see what will be of their end, for they are a generation of perversity children in whom there is no faithfulness. I'll read, let's go to the next slide, I'll read these verses. I don't have any notes under them. 6.16 and 17.7. Do not test God. And so this is very thematic. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. Jesus cited this when he was refuting the temptations of the devil. You shall not put the the Lord your God to the test. And so it's really, in a sense, obstinance that I'll do what I want and I'm going to dare God to try to judge me. And it should scare us so badly we wouldn't think of it. But sadly, when it mentions Massa here, in the case of Israel, when they did so the first time, when they grumbled, God provided the water because of his love and mercy. He's a merciful God. But it continued on until it came to worse things. Numbers 14 we talked about. Outright idolatry. And the next time, it wasn't the same. 
the fire started consuming people from the outside in. Till Phineas thrust that spear. And uh, don't, we cannot, God help us, God help us. We cannot uh, think that we don't need to pay attention because God's merciful and he won't do anything. What we want is to be helped by him, to be faithful by his grace. One more verse. <clears throat> Exodus 17, 7. And he called the name of the place Masa and Mirabah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel when they tested God. I will uh, end with those verses. Let's close with prayer. We're going to have the Lord's Supper today. Thank you, dear Lord, that you have shown us mercy and grace, given us salvation through your son Jesus, and given us these scriptures to help us understand who you are, what you've done, what you've said. May we be loving and kind and merciful to one another and not create slogans that would harm other Christians. And as we receive what you've provided for us at your table, may we be filled with love and hope as we trust you and thank you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.